Welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast about value-based healthcare and the people who make it happen. This week, you'll hear Joe and Josh talk to Jim Manzi, who is, among other things, the co-founder of Foundry AI, a technology company focused on artificial intelligence. It's a great conversation about how to bring scientific methodology and experimentation into business decisions and about machine learning, a hot topic that Jim helps us understand a little bit better. Enjoy. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I lead adoption and training here at Allidade. I'm Josh Israel, a medical director at Allidade. We are delighted today to welcome Jim Manzi. Jim is the co-founder of Foundry AI, which is an AI-focused tech studio and is the author of Uncontrolled, the surprising payoff of trial and error for business, politics, and society. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we'd love to talk about some of the some of the material in your great book. It talks a lot about experimentation in economics, science, business. Uh, what, what made you want to write that book? Well, I'd spent about 15 years starting and building a software company that was focused on providing the technology platform to do uh, in-market experiments for large, typically consumer businesses, and felt there were things that I had learned in that experience that might be useful and helpful to a larger audience. What did you think about in terms of focusing on, there's a lot of policy elements in the book as well. Uh, what was your ideal split between business and policy or, or, or doing the historical perspective on the science side as well? Well, I, I thought it was important to go through the historical perspective and the development of randomized trials in agriculture and medicine originally as a way of describing the challenges um, that the people invented that method were trying to overcome and describe how those were very relevant to decision-making happening today in society, much of which is happening in business, but lots of which happens in government policy setting as well. Um, and I didn't really start out having a percent allocation split. Um, I just thought I'd try and to des- describe the different contexts in which it turns out experiments are important. Such as what? Well, um, one place is in uh, businesses. Uh, people may not recognize this, but there's a widespread use today of randomized experiments, particularly online, where they're often called A-B tests. Um, and the reason you see lots of experiments online is when you're trying to answer a question like, will the blue background or the green background on my website lead more people to click through, buy something, watch a piece of content? It turns out to be very cheap and easy to run that experiment because I can just randomly assign 50,000 users to see a blue background and 50,000 to see a green background and measure the difference. Um, what my company was focused on was taking that basic idea and applying it to larger, more complicated, and often non-online businesses. So things like large retailers, hotel chains, restaurant chains, ultimately insurance companies, banks, pharmaceutical companies, and so on. So that is one context in which you see lots of experiments happening today. And that has really changed over the last 20 years. Another area is in government policy specifically around uh, service delivery parts of the government. So things like education, uh, certain parts of healthcare, criminology, and so on. A a third place you see a lot of it increasingly is in academic disciplines that historically have been non-experimental, but quantitative things like economics, political science, and so on. We see in scientific journals more and more when people are going back to replicate studies, especially in the field of psychology, that they they find out that even this attempt to do a well-designed study turned out to be inaccurate. You know, if you do enough studies, you're going to have that. How how do you control for that, especially as something as complicated as business or public policy? 
Well, it's a great it's a great question with a slightly complicated answer. So if you think about trying to understand how certain I am that a causal statement is correct, that X causes Y, and trying to use an experiment to answer that, I have first what are called threats to internal validity, meaning did I do the experiment in such a way that in the context of that actual test I ran, I can reliably say that X caused Y. Then you have a problem if you did the experiment correctly of something called external validity, which is, well, that experiment was really with, in the case of many psychology experiments, you know, these 48 high school so or college sophomores who I gave beer money to, right? And I will often make statements that apply to all of humanity. And it's tricky often to reliably generalize from what happened in the experiment to what will happen in other contexts. And it's exacerbated, in my view, by the fact that if I run particularly small experiments with small numbers of participants, I tend to have a lot of variance in the results. And if I ran 20 experiments, and in each of them I say, well, there's a, there is a statistical test that says I'm confident at the 95% level that in fact I have found an effect, I will find one random effect. And further, um, when being strict about running an experiment and the way the FDA makes you run an experiment for a, a therapy, is I have to say at the beginning, here's exactly how I'm going to analyze this. I'm going to look at this specific outcome. You know, did your blood pressure go down? And here are the exact details of how I'm going to do that analysis. And it turns out that even beyond the problem of, well, if I just do enough experiments, I will eventually get a random effect that I will can misinterpret as a causal effect. I have what is called a lot of things, p-hacking or the garden of forking mm -hmm. paths, et cetera, which says that I can try lots of different ways of analyzing this experiment and say, well, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it worked for males, not females. Maybe it worked for people with red hair on Tuesdays. And eventually I can find a way to analyze the results to retrospectively claim I found a causal effect. Um, it's a kind of nerdy you know, issue, which is why I think it goes under the radar a lot. But it is the underlying reason why I think you see a lot of these replication issues and experiments in the field you're talking about. One thing I found interesting when reading the book uh, was asking myself as a former surgical trainee how that uh, how these experiments in the gold standard randomized control trials played into our work in surgery. And a lot of cases, not particularly well. And you point out some of those things in the book. Um, would you mind expounding on that? Sure. Well, I mean, <clears throat> there are examples of something approximating modern jaw surgery that I reference in the book that mm -hmm. been thousands of years ago you can find. And part of the reason is that you can often see the effects so directly of something you do in surgery that you don't really need structured randomized experiments. It's completely obvious when I take this, and as someone who skipped all four years of medical school, I'll make a, <laughs> our, you know, an illustrative statement. I take this arm that clearly has a broken bone in it. I set it correctly and the person is healthy. I don't really, at a practical level, need to run an experiment. There's a famous paper published in BMJ called A Randomized Experiment to Test the Effect of Using a Parachute When Jumping Out of an Airplane, <laughs> which is obviously making the point in a very British way that um, you don't need experiments for certain kinds of in-practice knowledge. And that's one reason why in surgery you don't, you don't see as much of it. Um, second, I think that um, this problem of generalization becomes very important. Um, when I can find... An, uh, a chemical intervention <clears throat> that addresses an acute effect immediately um, that will work broadly across the population, 
that is almost the perfect case to run an experiment mm. and measure causal effects and use it. So what I sometimes call the heroic era of the RCT, when Jonas Salk invents polio vaccine, you go out, you test it, and the fact is, to an excellent engineering approximation, that polio vaccine works for, you know, in rural Saskatchewan, and it works in urban New York, and it works 30 years later. Um, so many procedures that happen surgically are so dependent on context, so dependent on details of this particular situation that it's harder to find those uniform rules that are really going to guide behavior in the moment when I have to decide, do I slice here or don't I? Right. There was a study in a psychiatric journal not too long ago that showed that um, the wrong medicines in the hands of, uh, of a doctor who had really good connection to his patients helped more than the algorithmically correct medication in the hands of a doctor who wasn't very nice to his patients. And it's really um, sort of head-spinning to read this. You don't really know what to do with this as a physician other than be nice to your patients and choose the right, right medicine. Right, right. But it, it sort of just makes the whole thing so murky. You know, these things are so confounded by so many variables. Yeah, I agree. Um, I made up the term causal density to try and describe mm -hmm. that situation. And I think that um, my daughter had scarlet fever, right? And what scarlet fever meant, if you read the book that we all read as children 100 years ago, was like, you might die. What scarlet fever means now is you take a pill every day for 10 days and you're fine. And so there are conditions for which, you know, my doctor can be nice to me or not nice to me, but that pill is going to make you better. But I, we found a lot of those, right? And so we're, I think we're frequently in situations where um, the assumption of uniform biological response, which is a tolerable engineering approximation for pills for, you know, scarlet fever, um, is no longer really an accurate guide to behavior. And context and nuance become so important in determining what package of interventions are going to work uh, for this person uh, that the skill of the physician becomes mm -hmm. crucial. It's always been crucial, but it's crucial, I think, in a lot of case, in a lot of situations in a different way than it used to be, and actually is more analogous in certain ways to non-chemical interventions. Mm -hmm. Like when you see interventions that are not chemical and non-coercive, like what I analyzed in the book as social interventions, things like literacy programs or changes to how you try and get prisoners not to go back to prison, et cetera. Uh, it turns out that it's extremely difficult to get the kind of uniform rules of do X, Y will happen that work correctly. For vaccine, you know, pretty much you put the chemical in the bloodstream anywhere and it works. If I prove in a well-structured experiment that the following literacy program works well in, you know, urban Charlotte in 1987, it just doesn't mean it's going to work in rural Saskatchewan in 1999 or in Singapore in 2004. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the situation you're really it seems to me, often in. Jim, shifting gears a bit, you also discuss in the book and how we know you here through Allidade, uh, not in a clinical medicine context or a randomized control trial context, but in a business context. And you talk about private companies that are doing experiments every day and really thinking deeply about this. Uh, my question is, given that big data and machine learning has become so much a part of the vernacular in the business context. Is there still a need for a third party like your former company to come in and explain those things and run those experiments? Got it. Well, 
first of all, running an experiment is a statement of humility, right? You only run it because you do not believe you have cert knowledge certain enough to make a decision that's important. I, as someone who spent his career doing, by the various names it keeps being referred to by things like artificial intelligence uh -huh. and analytics and experiments and so on, um, we remain much more ignorant than informed about the effects of our interactions on the world. Um, and I think there's a large and growing need um, and recognized need to run experiments. Um, what we were doing it at my own company wasn't as much explaining it as providing technology to be able to design and interpret experiments rapidly, iteratively at low cost and accurately, and typically including randomization. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is gr gaining share, not losing share in terms of decision-making in large companies. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think, you know, seeing it through the lens of um, being in the business world, but also having studied some of these things as an MBA, you, uh, they spend a lot of time trying to explain to you in business school how to explain these findings right. to people, whole classes on just uh, statistical consulting and how to deliver that kind of work product. So. Well, I mean, one of the really valuable things about an experiment is there's not nine pages of let me take you through exactly how this engine works. Um, it's we did it here and we didn't do it there and we randomly assigned them and let me tell you the difference. Mm -hmm. And further, one of my observations, one of the things that led me to start the company is a lot of times in a business, sophisticated analysis is really a form of rhetoric, right? It's a way of creating momentum behind a decision that you're taking for other reasons. Um, and I eventually became pretty frustrated by that. Actually, part of the reason I became very focused on experiments is it wasn't more PowerPoint and it wasn't more talking about things. Mm -hmm. It was, you could really know, like, no kidding, is the red skirt going to sell better or the green skirt going to sell better? What's going to happen if I change my price? Does this training program actually cause people to perform better or not? Yeah, that, that definitely came through uh, in your writing where as somebody who'd never been a consultant, uh, I understood the value of doing that kind of consulting and actually doing something, you know, not to besmirch anybody who does consulting, but running the experiment is tremendously valuable for these companies. Yeah, and you, you, they go, you watch an organization go through a looking glass from this is yet another thing I have to do in order to get the authority to execute the program I want to execute to wait a second, like I can really know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. And you go from this is a requirement and a box to be ticked for me to be able to do something to much more demand for experiments than you have capacity to run. And it becomes a resource that has to be allocated because then everybody wants to run experiments and get answers. And by the way, those who don't want to call what they did experiments, right? Experiment isn't just like trying something. It's trying something in a very specific way so you can measure an outcome. And so then controlling the language of what we mean by an experiment uh, becomes important. When I first got to Allidate, I was asked to put together a presentation on an initiative I was hoping to do and to put together the, the projected ROI and return on investment. Then, yeah. And I was, yeah, I'm not sure I knew what it was when I got here, so that's, that's good. <laughs> um, and if we know now, yeah. Um, I had to put together how much this initiative was going to do, like what, the, what the results were going to be, how much it was going to bring in. And I had to say, I don't know because nobody's ever done this before in business. And you're asking me to put this together. And the answer is, but if you don't write a number, how are we possibly going to decide whether or not to go ahead with this? And the, the level of evidence was so different than I was used to in medicine. And we have these discussions a lot here. Our, our CEO is an epidemiologist, and then there are people from all sorts of other backgrounds, like MBAs like Joe. 
And trying to put together the various uh, acceptable thresholds to move forward is really fascinating to watch. And often we will decide to do an experiment, but then an experiment still only gets you an approximation of what's likely to go ahead. So then in the end, you end up having these these sort of back and forth discussions anyway. It's it's just a fascinating thing to watch how business decisions get made. It, it really is. I mean, I'll tell you a great story. Um, there was a large, very sophisticated retail company that was using our technology and that a very smart CEO who naturally, who both understood marketing and consumers and the stuff that on TV business people are supposed to understand, but also very sophisticated about the microeconomics of the thing. And um, they were a retailer uh, of clothes and so on. And a very important issue in retailing clothes is the window displays. And the uh, analytical team came in and said, you know, we've done a series of, I forget the number, but it was 10 or 12 or 14 experiments over the last two last couple of years where we've tried spending more money on window displays. And what we're showing every single time, there's no statistically significant effect on sales caused by the greater level of spending on windows. And we have we've discovered this really counterintuitive, valuable piece of information that's wasted spending. We shouldn't be spending as much on windows. And the CEO listened calmly and at the end said, you know, my conclusion is your guys who do windows stink. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's a flippant way of making a kind of important point, right? Which is there is never a straight line from an experimental result to an action conclusion. In fact, what you can see there is the conclusion is the opposite of what they said, which is spend more money on Windows, not less money on Windows. And I think that is how they they have to be seen. Um, Further, I think that um, people who come at this from a purely analytical uh, background often say, well, if we, if we don't do the experiment, the best thing we have is the following other kind of analysis. But one of the points I was trying to make in that book is you're not only competing with other ways of doing analysis, you're competing with operational experts. And then actually a lot of what I was calling for is deference to operational experts. Like when you can run the experiment and know the answer, then you know the answer. I mean, when I drop the cannonballs from the top of the tower and they hit the ground at the same time, Aristotle's wrong, despite being one of the greatest geniuses in history who said unequally weighted objects fall at different rates. Um, but other than that, other than when I can really discover some truth that's important through an experiment, deference to operational experts becomes important. And even in the presence of experiments, often translating the experimental result to a to practical conclusion about action requires real operational knowledge. How does that play into our work here? Like, do you look at um, you're a, a member of Allidate's board and and know um, a lot about our business model and are, have talked to Farzad and our CEO and others about that. How do you think about using experimentation in our work where there's a heavy service component? Everybody's, a, you know, each practice is very different and there are a lot of snowflakes uh, in the Allidade universe. I think that the way experimentation helps an organization is, first of all, can never take a dysfunctional organization and make it work well. It takes a well-functioning organization and helps it improve. And generally, those improvements are via a mountain of pebbles. It's not, here are the three headline things we learned that are going to change the way we operate this business. It's creating lots and lots of little advantages in repeated decision processes. So what I'd say is where there are processes, for example, I'll take a hypothetical example. Um, We want to figure out, to go to the way you've described your job, we want to figure out how it is we help practices improve operational performance that makes clinical care better and improves economics. Uh 
there are many, many subcomponents of that. What exactly are the um, software interfaces that users should use that will help them uh, use the software more effectively? You run little tests. Well, what if we have the button here versus the button there? Should we do all four modules of this training exercise, or is actually all the value in modules one and two? We can run a test. Um, it's hundreds and hundreds of experiments like that to find little advantages that actually can add up to be an enormous advantage. That's the way I'd be looking for it. It's not we're going to radically change something about our business. It's we're going to create lots and lots of little advantages. So I'd love to use some of your expertise here to talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. So can you define those in a way that is clear? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> then I understand it. <laughs> Good. Uh, here's, what I, here's what I'd say about those things. So obviously we are, in my view, actually probably passing the peak of the, the greatest hype cycle in AI uh, in, a, in, in history, uh, in a field that has lots of cycles mm -hmm. of hype, and then what in the field we call AI winter, which follows, right? Um, when inevitably people say, you made all these grandiose claims about what it's going to do, like, how is it actually really helping me? I don't see the evidence. I think we're already heading into that. We will soon if we're not already there. Um, machine learning, uh, the way I would describe machine learning is this. It is looking for patterns in numbers that are relevant. I have a bunch of numbers, and I find patterns that are relevant. And it turns out that can be very helpful. AI, you know, the textbook definition is it is a computer or similar device which operates in the way an intelligent human would, which is not super helpful. The way it really works, in my experience, in practice, in a large company that creates improvement is always the same thing. I have some repeated business decision process. When the person swipes the credit card, do I approve the transaction or not? Do I put the cupcakes on sale this week or not? Do I hire Bill or Betty? And AI is the application of data plus math to create statistical improvement in that business decision process. At a practical level, that's how I—that's what I see AI being, at least AI that's productive in a business. What are you most excited about on the horizon then for AI in particular? Well, there have been some advances that really are relevant. Probably the most widely discussed in the last five, six, seven years is something called deep learning. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is the white hot center of all the hype, you know, about AI. And really the killer application of deep learning is the ability to take things that we didn't used to think of as data and make them into data, which boils into words, pictures, sounds, and sensor exhaust. So in our context, the ability to take um, x-rays, the ability to take images of skin, the ability to take notes in electronic health records, et cetera, and turn all that stuff into really what are, in the end, lists or matrices of numbers um, in a way that retains a lot of the information that was in the original item. And then put it into machine learning pipelines. Now that I've got numbers, find relevant patterns in those numbers. And so really the excitement for me right now about AI is we're starting because we're coming out of the hype cycle to get practical about all the engineering work to take that idea and turn it into useful productive production processes. Um, that's where I think AI is going to be going to be in the next five plus years. It's not going to be about, oh, here's this new insight at this research institution. Let me tell you all the cool things that it might do. It's really going to be about the engineering work of taking some of those breakthroughs and turning them into real production tools. What do you think is most commonly misunderstood or overhyped about machine learning? That it is useful for solving 
problems that people can't. What it's actually most useful for is solving problems that people can solve, but where I can't afford to have an expensive expert person addressing every one of these repeated decisions. Hmm. Um, so in life sciences, I believe there there's about a, about a billion dollars last quarter invested in healthcare AI, um, 830 something million. There are 150 significant venture-backed companies that I know of just focused on AI for drug discovery, right? I think that the transition from in silico or a molecule on one side to in vivo effectiveness with tolerable side effects is a chasm unbridgeable by anything other than human ingenuity, luck, and persistence. The idea that you're going to have a piece of software do that for you is, in my view, a pipe dream. And I think the world's kind of coming to that point of view. What what it's actually useful for is sub-processes inside that, um, in the case of drug discovery, right? I have all of these slide images, and I have to go through many thousands of them to identify a subset that I want to investigate in more detail. Perfect task for AI. Invent new molecular entity that's going to solve a disease state, not so much. So I think that's the misconception, is it's not about solving big unsolved problems. It's about solving sub-processes where I can't afford to deploy expensive people. And how mindful of you are the, the social risks of AI? Um, I actually think they're mostly pretty overblown, um, partially because I don't think AI is capable of a lot of the things that people are, are often casually asserting it. Well, often in the AI community, there's a running joke called, you know, Skynet is not a problem. You know, referring to <laughs> Terminator. Terminator movie, right? Um, I do think that there are risks um, if technology, particularly around facial recognition, gets really misused, um, which it potentially will, particularly by government authorities, um, that is a specific area where I think there could be a big problem. The problems that I think are emerging from technologies that are adjacent to it, that people often bundle in with it, are not really dependent on AI. I mean, I think there's a huge issue around privacy, um, which is really driven by dramatically dropping costs for storing, transmitting, and um, uh, analyzing information, right? It's not really AI, but it always gets bundled up in people's mind with it. And I think privacy is, is one big issue. And I think another is, you know, smartphones embed a lot of what in practice you would think of as AI. And I do think there are big issues about social media use, et cetera, that are very damaging um, to people. Um, I, I often think of the introduction of the smartphone as sort of like when drugs became widespread in use 50 years ago in the United States, it was, it was like a virus entering a body with no antibodies, right? And eventually, we kind of figured out rules to control all that so that it's much less of a problem than it might have been. Smartphones, five to 10 years are the same thing. Um, now, it was inconceivable that I would act towards my children and their use of smartphones the way people did 10 years ago, but they didn't know, right? Um, so I think that that's another big issue, but both of those are sort of tangential to AI. I've been waiting for like 50 podcasts to mention the Terminator. So, <laughs> me a, too. A career highlight, a career <laughs> highlight for me. Sky, Skynet is not, is not an issue. Well, Jim, we really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jim.